Welcome to Encounter God's Truth, a weekly broadcast from Whitcomb Ministries that's designed to strengthen your faith in the certainty that God's Word is true from the beginning to the end. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and our Bible teacher is author and educator Dr. John Whitcomb, and today we're going to hear the conclusion of his own life story and testimony called The Conversion of an Evolutionist. As we come to the end of this particular message, it's a good time to remind you that you can listen to all of our past programs at sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. You'll find many other resources there as well, so we encourage you to visit often. And you can find that page conveniently through our website, whitcombministries.org. Today, Dr. Whitcomb will share more of the account of his own conversion and principles that he's drawn from that experience that have guided him through the years and can still encourage us today. Dr. Wickham will take us to Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, where the Apostle Paul proclaimed the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ to the philosophers of Athens on Mars Hill, stating, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead." Dr. Whitcomb first brought this message to the people of Grace Bible Church in Elkhart, Indiana, and we're thankful to them for being able to share it with you here on Encounter God's Truth. Here's Dr. Whitcomb now with the conclusion of The Conversion of an Evolutionist. So that when Dr. Fullerton said, Now, John, would you come with me next Sunday? We're going to invite a student to come to the Bible class. Because every September at university, the Princeton Evangelical Fellowship had a table like this, see, with literature and information about the gospel and about our Bible class. Freshmen would come in, this gymnasium, hundreds of tables. Some would actually sign up for the Bible class to be able to write home to grandmother or mother, you know, I'm going to a Bible class, so everything's fine here at Princeton. They had no intention of coming, especially after they looked at all the other tables, the things to sign up for, activities, you know, programs and functions and social things. And, and then when they got their assignments and classes, oh, they'd never seen anything like the assignments they got. Oh, guess what gets dropped off of the priority list? The Princeton Evangelical Fellowship Bible class, of course. But wait a minute. Dr. Fullerton had their name. And for months, he would follow up one after another after another personal confrontation in those dormitories. He said, John, uh, you come with me this Sunday. I said to myself, I, I, no, I am humiliated. I don't want any more confrontations. I'm out of this. But he insisted, as he so graciously could do things like that, he said, I'll, I'll take care of it, John. I just want you to be with me. I really do. Because he did something that I didn't know how to do. He prayed for that encounter. Now, that's a very dangerous thing to do, to pray for somebody in the name of Jesus. See, you know what Jesus said about prayer? If you ask anything in my name, I will what? I'll do it. Now, someday I want to find out how he... Can you imagine Jesus answering prayers of millions of people every moment, night and day, in a thousand languages? Perfectly. Wow. That's overpowering. Well, Donald Fuller knew how to pray. So I was sort of dragged into this situation. We went to this dormitory, knocked on the door. The door opened, cigarette smoke poured out. We saw five or six figures in the murky darkness and stated who we were. Lamp post tipped over, four of them fled. Our victim was trapped. <laughs> he said, gentlemen, I'm so sorry. I'm not interested in the Bible anymore. I've discovered it's not true. Oh, I was ready to say, well, we're sure sorry we bothered you. Goodbye. 
but not Donald Fullerton. Now, now wait a minute. What, what would you have said? He said, now this is, I'll never, he was brilliant, biblically brilliant. He said very graciously, thank you, but I'm amazed to learn that in five months you've discovered the Bible is not true. What did you find in the Bible that's not true? Uh-oh. The student was terrified. Why? As his four roommates were listening to this conversation. A Princeton student never says a book is false if he hasn't even read it. That's academically ridiculous. So he floundered for a minute. He said, uh, oh yes, Jonah and the whale. Nobody would believe that stupid story. He said the wrong thing to the wrong man. You know what I was going to do then? I was going to go to the library and dig up books on whales. <laughs> and prove to him that some whales can swallow people. And that some people have been swallowed by some whales. That was the last thing he needed. Guess what he needed? Now wait till you hear this one. Dr. Fullerton said, thank you for mentioning that amazing book. You'd be astounded to hear what Jesus Christ the Lord said about the book of Jonah. And then he told the student who Jesus Christ the Lord is. For a whole hour, the gospel beautifully presented. I, I, trust me, in one hour, that student was on his knees accepting Christ as a savior. I said, Where, what about Jonah and the whale? He said, I don't know anything about it. But one thing I now know, the Bible is true. My life has changed. Friends, this went on week after week, month after month, for 50 years on that campus. And I say, Lord, I just am amazed. Now, here was the hard part. I had to write to my mother and father and tell them what happened to me. I did the best I could to explain who Jesus is and what the gospel is and the Bible and everything. I didn't go into a lot of arguments and so forth. And about a month later, a sad letter came back to me from my mother. And I was the only child, you understand. They had their, all their hopes pinned on my career, my goal. Son, we're with you. We are with you as you come through this psychological experience that adolescents often have. In other words, they thought their son had been, what, sidetracked poisoned by some kind of occultism, psycho thing or other, that someday perhaps I would recover from that. I was devastated. I had two choices, folks. Either never mention Christ again in my home or have a divided family. That's an awful choice. And I said, Lord, help me to be a witness to my mom and dad. For 30 years, I prayed for my mother and father. Finally, I'm quite sure, when my dad was in his 80s, he came to Jesus as his Savior. Not sure about my mother. But you see, friends, what happens when you come to the Lord, you have the light. And God wants to have divided homes. He said so. He said, Jesus said in Luke 12, I have come to divide mother from father and brother from sister and husband from wife and child and parents and so forth. Division, division, division. So that there's some light that shines in what would otherwise be total darkness. He loves us so much. He wants us to have some light. He wants us to have some light. And, and, and God says, don't grope around in the dark. Let me be your light. Now, in the book of Proverbs, we find an amazing statement about this business of the light. See if we can find it. 
Job, Psalms, Proverbs. And uh, let's take a look at uh, chapter 20, verse 12. Do you have that? Proverbs 20, 12. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. Now, friends, when, when you stop to think about this, it's absolutely astounding what God is saying. If you were in a deep, dark cave with somebody and you got lost, and you say, well, how do we get out of here? Where's the light? Well, uh, I have a flashlight here, but I don't think it'll work. Well, try it. I mean, push the button. Well, I, don't, I just don't think it'll work. Well, look. Oh, let's not argue about it. Please push the button. And guess what happens? The minute you push the button, the light comes on and all discussion stops as to whether the light's on. You know why? Because you have a built-in system called eyes connected with the brain that can immediately, instantaneously detect the presence of physical light. The argument's over. How did you get those eyes? Look, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them. Okay, you're in a, to- you're in a room with- that's totally silent. It's sealed off from all noise. And after a while, you know, total darkness is damaging to people. Total silence for days is damaging to people. So you say to your friend, well, why don't you turn the radio on? Well, it won't work. I think it will. I know it won't. Well, why argue about it? Why not go over and push the button? And all of a sudden, guess what happens? Music comes on. And all discussion and debate as to whether there's music ends because the ear was designed by God to detect the presence of audible sound. It's like that. It's it's over. So God says, now watch me here. I have the light that will shine in the heart of man. And all discussion and debate and argument as to whether the light is on is ended. Watch me. I specialize in light and sound and equipment in the human heart, mind, and head to detect his presence. Now, here we go. Are you ready? Watch. Neo-evangelicalism says, no, no. God needs our brilliance, our skills, our education. The Bible alone is not enough. Neo-evangelicalism is very bad. Now, these are born-again people. Let me uh, explain immediately. We're talking about fellow Christians here. This is the dominant view in evangelical Christianity today. Neo-evangelicalism. Okay, now watch. Here's God's written word on creation of the flood. God's written word on the 70th week of Daniel and the millennium, as you saw last night. Okay. And God's written word on God's gracious plan for Israel and the church. Wow, look at all this. Based on what? The absolute inerrancy of biblical autographs. But the new evangelical says, now wait a minute. Unless we can prove these things to the unregenerate mind, you can't expect them to believe it. So neo-evangelicals are notorious for what? Watering down the creation. and the, the creation becomes what? Theistic evolution. The flood becomes what? Some regional catastrophe in the Mesopotamia or something, which is what I used to believe. Okay? And neo-evangelicals are notorious for what else? They don't believe the 70th week of Daniel and they don't believe in the millennium. They're very confused about what else? About how to identify Israel and the church and they don't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. You say, how can they be Christians? That's why when we are taken up at the rapture and the dead in Christ raised first too, 
we're going to be confronted by Christ at the Bema to determine whether we receive a reward or a crown on the basis of what we've done with this Bible. That's going to be very heavy for some Christians. You can't, you can't lose your salvation, folks. See? You will suffer loss, yet you shall be saved, yet by fire. Because to some extent or other, all of us have the potential with the signature of being a neo, a neo Christian, a neo evangelical. See? And, and when you look at, what does it do to you? Look at this. Semi-rationalistic apologetics. In other words, you have to somehow prove to the, the people or remove objections that people have to the Bible if you expect anybody to become a Christian. You're, all, you've already, you're already defeated right there. And because you're open to all these non-biblical influences, look what else happens to Christians today. Uh, social, cultural perspective, feminist movement, human rights, abortion. You see, all these things that the world does, you say, well, it's okay, no problem. No big problem. Look at this. Ecumenism. Let's, let's join with Catholics and liberals and everybody so we'll have a, a gigantic unified movement to impress the world. Oh, how about psychology and counseling? This has dominated many a church. Human schemes for influencing people in their homes, their marriages, their neighborhoods, their church. Oh, charismatic theology, as we mentioned before. You have to have sign miracles to expect anybody to believe the Bible. You see and uh, all of which is existentialism, which means in German, existence, I am ultimate. Only what I approve and what I understand and what I see is true. That's a disaster. I say, Lord, help us out. Here we go. The Bible says the opposite. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. As a workman that does not need to be ashamed, I don't want to be ashamed at the Bema, the judgment throne of Christ, handling accurately the what? The word of truth. Wow. I have to give an account to Christ for what I've done with the Bible. See, I may not know it all, I may not be that brilliant, but what I do know, I have to know truthfully. See, believingly. Say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. Okay. Why do I have to do that? Because the word of God is what? Living. And powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Why? Look what it does. And it is a discerner of what? The thoughts and intents of the heart. God specializes in heart surgery. Wow. Thank you, God. Or I still would be arguing with Donald Fullerton about evolution or something. The man who led me to the Lord. Okay. The Apostle Paul said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? For the time will come. And here we are. We're already here, folks. It has arrived. When they will not endure sound doctrine, healthy teaching, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate to themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myth. See, there's only, a, there's only one alternative to truth. It's a myth. Something that sounds good, but it's false. Satan is an expert in this. He really is. Okay. 
Therefore, Paul says, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Now, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to brilliant philosophers. Where? On Mars Hill in Athens, one of the greatest philosophic educational centers of the ancient world. And he boldly, courageously said to them, now watch. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, remember, Greeks didn't believe in resurrection. They thought, this is silly. This is, a, this is horrible. Who wants to have his life perpetuated with all the aches and pains and sicknesses? They had no idea what a resurrection was like, a true resurrection, as described in 1 Corinthians 15. So Greeks rejected resurrection. They want to be released, have their mind free to roam the world forever without a body. See, for him to talk about a savior who died and rose from the dead with a body was to them absolutely obnoxious. You say, well, who, who are they supposed to believe this man was? See here, through a man. Well, for days, Acts 17 says, he had been in the marketplace telling him about Jesus and resurrection. Jesus, resurrection. Jesus, Anastasis in Greek. They thought there were two different gods or something. Tell us about Jesus and Anastasis. Who is this? What are you talking about, resurrection? And he told them. And friends, as a result of that, praise the Lord. Some, when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. That's expected, majority. And others said, we shall hear you again. We'll postpone further discussion, but we're kind of curious about this. And I say, Lord, the big thing is, but some believed. Some actually believed in what he said. And I say, Lord, that's it. I need help to do the work of the gospel, the ministry, like the Apostle Paul did. But friends, here, here's a warning. Here's a warning. Paul ended his life of ministry in almost total defeat. Now, let me explain that. The last book he ever wrote was to his favorite disciple, Timothy. Now, this to me is almost unbelievable. He said, Timothy... All they of Asia have what? Forsaken me. Asia? Well, that's, that's where he had a school of Tyrannus for two years. That's where he trained people. So, that, so effectively did he teach the Bible in that school, day after day, week after week, month after month. I want a set of tapes of those lectures, don't you, Pastor? My. That all they of Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. It was a powerful outreach from Ephesus. Uh, ten years later, he was in Rome in prison, ready to be executed. He said, Timothy, all they of Asia have forsaken me. Now, you know, that doesn't mean they lost their salvation. That means they could no longer identify with his standards, his way of handling the Bible, his way of witnessing to people, his way of serving the Lord. He, he, they, they said, he, he's too extreme, see, for us. And, of course, you know what happened to the church of Ephesus, don't you? The apostle John later became the pastor there and said, you have left your first love. If you don't repent and do the first works... I'll come quickly and remove your candlestick from your midst unless you repent. They were already in a slide down, down to compromise. See? Compromise. Compromise. This is what I, here's what I call it. The second law of ecclesiastical thermodynamics. Everything in the church, all schools, all churches, all fellowships of churches, 
all mission societies, name it, apart from divine intervention and confrontation, are going downhill. Always, everywhere. Down, down, down. You say, Dr. Wickham, that, that's so pessimistic. No, it's realistic. God says, don't, don't get upset about this. I know all about it. I have a solution to this problem. Just let's walk together. Now, you may, you may find that you're the only one. Now, I, I'm just speculating here, Pastor, for a moment. I, I, you may be the only one in your church who still really takes seriously the whole Bible. I mean, Genesis to Revelation. Don't, don't panic. One person with God is the majority. Wow, really? Yeah, God is so great that if you connect with him, you're in big business. Big business. Big time with him. Now, don't become arrogant about this. See, just be very humble and very patient and recognize you could be the only person in your church who still believes the whole Bible. Okay. Now, handle that very patiently, humbly, graciously, wisely, but that's the way it could be. And that's true in many denominations in America, many churches, many schools in this country that claim to be Christian. I'm talking about Christian ministries. Okay. In fact, it's so, it is so serious that Jesus said this. Here's a rhetorical question he asked. When the Son of Man returns to the earth, will he find the, will he find the faith on the earth? Not faith, the faith. What's that mean? Will he find even one person at the second coming who believes the whole Bible? Just one. He didn't say there won't be. He just said, I'm just asking. Which means don't count on the ecumenical movement to bring us all together in a unity of faith and truth and love. No, it won't work that way. Now, here's the point. Don't allow that to be discouraging because God says, now, now you just, you make disciples of all nations, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And you say, well, that's impossible. Make disciples of all nations of the world and teach them everything you said in the Bible? That's impossible. Right, right. But then he added a footnote. Ready for this one? And lo, what? I am with you, even to the end of the age. Thank you, Jesus. It's, it's hopeless, it's impossible, it's ridiculous. But you're with me. You said so. I mean, you're serious about that. So there's hope. Wherever Jesus is, there's hope, right? Hey, I heard one agreeing. Five of you, yes. <laughs> so we need help. And Jesus says, dear child, sit down. Let's talk. I am with you. Now, don't get defeated over this. Don't get discouraged that the that, that, that gospel, the true understanding of the Bible is spreading and millions of people are believing more and more and more and more. Everything's getting better and better and better. No, it's not. But don't get discouraged. I'm with you. And I say, Lord, I, I need instruction. I need enlightenment to get this point clearly in my mind and heart. We need help that only you can give. I just want to thank you, Pastor, for inviting us again to come and share. And I hope you're not tired of hearing Dr. Wickham say, when all else fails, open the Bible. Let's pray. Now, Father, I want to thank you for your marvelous mercy in my life. As I look back over those many years since 1943, how you brought me into the kingdom, into the true church, into the illumination of the Holy Spirit, and discover from that moment to this, you have kept your promise. You've been with me. I've not always been faithful, at many times discouraged, sidetracked, distracted, but even defeated. But you, 
You'll show me someday, Lord Jesus, like you will every child of God on this planet. You never failed us. We failed you. Help us right now with all we have within us by your spirit to say, Lord Jesus, I surrender again to you now as my Lord, my King, the source of my light and truth. I, you gave me eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. Help me. Help me. This day I pray. Be with Pastor Fisher and the wonderful staff here and these wonderful people that have invited us for this conference. These things we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. And with that prayer, we turn a corner in this new series, picking up next time with a consideration of God's truth circles, learning how to minister and teach the Bible in a world filled with error, confusion, and compromise. We hope that you'll join us for this very thought-provoking teaching. But in the meantime, join us anytime at sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb and also at facebook.com slash Whitcomb Ministries. Until then, for Dr. John Whitcomb, I'm Wayne Shepherd, leaving you today with this word from Psalm 39 about the hope that only the Lord God can give to us. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely, all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely, a man goes about as a shadow. Surely, for nothing, they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Thanks for listening to this edition of Encounter God's Truth.